My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? in the 70s it was really in the east village because everything everything was falling down you know so things were cheap because you know good luck to you to live here but there was a great concentration of i forget who was it there was a writer that said it was either rocket rock and roll drugs or woo woo he goes those are the, and usually all in one person right so you were into drugs magic and you know and music And it pretty much does describe it because there really were, I mean, there were there were magical wars here in the 70s. <laughs> it's, um... I was never involved in any of these things, but you would hear it. There was always mm. people putting whammies on other people. I mean, you just couldn't. But there is this, I mean, it's in any any kind of community that that kind of expresses some kind of an exclusivity to a knowledge and an expertise in things. You you do start getting, you know, a piston contest, let's say. So in the seventies there was a lot of a lot of hostility amongst people that you would think should be just sort of natural allied. If you know what I mean, you're kind of all like in the same, but that's it. You're all in the same pot. So each one is kind of and it was called Dead Names is the name of the book. The story of the publishing of the Necronomicon in the 70s. And he was deeply involved. And so this is, this gets into the witch wars, as they called it then. And then how there was a sit-down trying to bring peace amongst the, the covens and the, and the sectarians. <laughs> oh yeah, it's wild here. But it is an interesting kind of history, in a way, of the writing of the Necronomicon. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Once over was Jim Wasserman's loft, and there were a couple of people, other folks that were involved in publishing, and he was involved in editing for Weiss's at that time. And we're just kind of hanging out. I was visiting from upstate, coming from college, and and he goes, well, "Take a look at this. We just got this manuscript in. They want they want Weiss's to publish it, but we're not sure. And it was the and it's like they claim it's the Necronomicon." It's like, what's the Necronomicon? They go, H.P. Lovecraft. Who's H.P. Lovecraft? 
Take a walk of sufficient length through any library, and you may find things written, magical things, beyond your wildest imaginations. And none of these things in the fiction section. That's right. If you're anything like today's guest, you may even stumble upon a topic that's been relegated to the arcane sciences, a topic dismissed by most mainstream pedagogues who claim that the science is nothing more than the misguided ramblings of medieval fools with the intentions of discovering the secrets of turning lead to gold. Today's guest, Brian Cote Noir, would have a lot to say in contrary to that. Through his book, Practical Alchemy and many others, he shows that alchemy is very much alive in history, in culture, and especially in art. Paracelsus once said, where nature ends, there the art of man begins. For nature's ultimate matter is man's primal matter. I'm Mystic Mark, and you're listening to My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for being here, and enjoy this conversation with Brian Cote Noir. for their collection of the Emerald Tablet. Really? Yeah. Oh. So very, yeah. There's a handful of you know, very good libraries that, that have it in their special collections. Yeah, I can imagine there are interesting people who are interested in it. The Getty family is, is certainly interesting. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, Mr. Cote Noir, we're going to get rolling here. I have a bunch of questions for you. And it's a pleasure to have you here. For maybe our listeners who haven't heard of you before, can you give us a little bit of info on you know who you are and what you've been up to in the past uh, few years or so? Sure. F- past few decades. You're recording, yes? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. So what I do, I'm Brian Cote Noir, and I, my work basically is involved in researching alchemy. And alchemy, both materially, spiritually, I guess, in work and things like this, and how that how that has meant different things over different times. Okay, so what I do is I attempt to go to the primary sources of of alchemy, other texts, etc., work out a procedural process, and then attempt to replicate it. Once I have that replication, right? Some things succeed, some things don't. It's practical alchemy in a sense. I love it. You go back and you reread the text. And from there you get some things that match with what you've done. And some things suggest other things. And then as you go, so this is an aspect of alchemy that it is a a dialogue. It's a dialogue attempting to understand creation. And then once understanding creation, you know, what you might be able to do to, to manipulate it, to play with it, to move it to other stages. Right. Right. And I think uh, often people get caught up in the theoretical alchemy and forget that there is that practical side, which is exactly. why I'm excited to have you here and, and really dive into this topic in depth. Mm-hmm. Because although I've never practiced alchemy, I have 
played around with the theory quite a bit and who knows, maybe accidentally practice some alchemy, but if you cook, you do. Great, great uh, point. Yeah. Yeah. Cooking and, and even, you know, in the back of this book that I mentioned, practical alchemy by yourself, you have the, the herbal lore and, and their, you know, connections to each planet. I think that's a very important point. We don't want to get there just yet because right exactly as you know this is the my family thinks some crazy podcast i like to figure out who you were when you were younger and and also you know particularly <laughs> on the point of alchemy like what really sparked this in you because i heard you oh, mention this on <laughs> on another podcast and i i have a very similar take i guess i i, I can remember times in the library coming across very curious books about alchemy so without uh, me giving it away how did yeah. you come across alchemy first it was it was really it's actually funny two things one is and this actually follows as i really studied alchemy right as i studied the history traditions things like this my experiences actually mimic the two traditions that like how alchemy was transmitted and was transmitted across borders one is a textual tradition out of books that you read and then you read other books. And the other one is a, a craft aspect of it where the techniques and the, and the materials are passed on and taught. So for instance, in alchemy that gets played out with books being translated from, from Greek into Arabic, Arabic into Latin, this type of a thing. But then the other mode of transmission were the artists, were the artisans, which were working with these same processes, right? How do you make, basically, how do you make, how do you make bronze look like gold? How can you, you know, mix copper, copper and gold together so that it actually looks like full gold, right? Known as Corinthian gold, you know, it, it's like used by early artisans. And so there's this material transmission that goes basically artist manual to artist manual, right? And, and that transmits into Europe at around 800, 800 AD in an artist manual. Some of the early alchemical things that are traced back to Alexandria and Egypt, as well as there's a textual one. So my rumblings around in the library, <laughs> I just, you know, I think if most people are listening to this, I think they will identify like with this raging sense of curiosity that I think a lot of us have and had, and especially kids have an abundance. But then I think folks who are drawn to this stuff, it's like have a little bit of extra of it. So after school, we stayed kind of a nerd doing my homework, right? I'd go to library, do my homework. So I would have time then to roam the stacks. <laughs> and I mean, I found everything. You know, just as you would, right? I was given an adult library card at an early age because I, I could read and kind of went through the kids section pretty quickly. But, and then I came across this book on alchemy, right? So the history, and I think it was by Titus Burkhart. There's another one because there were two books that would have been published around that time, right? Kind of mid sixties that would have been in the library because it is a history, but it actually is a really good one. And it, it, I had, it annoyed me. I mean, this is, this is the thing when I read it, it, it was like, this is really annoying. At the same time, I, I kept coming back to it and looking back on it as an, as an adult, the way I think I would phrase it is what I was seeing there. I had a strong interest in the sciences 
and I had a strong interest in the arts. Many of my family like draw, paint, and I, I, I have an, I do that as well, although I don't call myself that necessarily. And that's, that's kind of what, you know, kind of, kind of got it all, all started. It was this, this, it seemed as if the book was this intersection of the two, which both fascinated me, but yet was impenetrable. At the time, I mean, you know, like what, 11 years old, 12 years old, this is, this is in the adult section in the library. So there is a bit of, bit of that challenge, but at the same time, it was like not fitting, right? If you know what I mean, it's like, it's art and it's science, but it seems to be, and that was, I mean, that, that was also the, the enticement of it was like, wow, here's something that kind of gets at this other other kind of way of looking at the world and it happened to fit with the kind of way I was looking at the world at that age. Right. You know, right. And then sort of like, an, I can, yeah. Well, I was going to say, and, and quite possibly planted these seeds in, in the garden of your mind that, you know, Absolutely. grew into all of these excellent things you've done. Now, where we're, Going next after this period, you obviously you're spending a lot of time probably wrestling with this in your head, but at some point, and I know this from a previous interview I've heard <laughs> you on, you made your way into Wiser in New York City. Now, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I live, was... I, I live not too far from there, and I just wanted to point out how Excuse you know. Me, you saying you live not too far from there? Well. From New York City. Wiser, as we both know, is no longer. I was going to say, wow, are you around the block? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, they're no longer there, but going to New York City, you know, and searching for used bookstores is one of my favorite things to do Absolutely. because just the, you know, millions of people that are there and have been yeah. there, you know, the possibilities yeah. are really limitless. So Total. when I found that out, I was like, oh, shoot, I missed Wiser in New York City. But I'm wondering, you know, was it just circumstance or a little bit of what we call on the show synchro mysticism, synchronicity? Oh, this was a plan. Yeah. Tell oh, this was a plan. This was this was <laughs> because in, in those wanderings in the library, I would I would see who publishers were. Right. Right. And then I would I would it's like my my penmanship is is was really bad in grammar school. So I, it's like, I think about these people getting these letters <laughs> and what they looked like asking for their catalog. I mean, it was obviously by, I was 12 when I wrote for the first catalog from Weiser's, but I look at things. I have like the Egyptian book of the dead. Okay. The first Dover edition that came out in the sixties or something like that. I have my name. In. It looks like it's printed by a five-year-old in big block. <laughs> so I can imagine I can relate them getting, right them getting a letter from somebody could you send me your catalog and once I got the Weister's catalog it was like oh my god it, it's like everything yeah. I've got to go there someday and then that was it I started going and there was uh the first book was the volumes of Paracelsus by translated by uh Arthur Edward Wheat. It's a two volume, was a two volume set of the hermetic and alchemical writings of Paracelsus. So someday you will be mine. Yeah. 
And then I did, I, I, you know, worked summer stuff, did things, hustled, whatever, got, got the $35 together, which was quite, and bought it. And then I'm like, okay, this is like reading concrete, you know, when you bang your head against that for a while. Yeah. And then that was it. So it was intentional because I knew like seeing what was on the bookshelf and then knowing that there's a basement. It was like, I got to get myself in the basement. Right. Right. And so, I, you know, before we get into that a little bit, I'm, I'm wondering, cause I've run into this same thing with the concrete, you know, and it's, yeah. it's a mix of things, you know, but I'm wondering, you know, what alleviates that for you? Is it, is it getting your head in the mindset of that person and how they would have wrote at that time? Is it context, other, you know, maybe peers that were writing as well during that time. What, what are some strategies to sort of get through that sure. thick, dense stuff? Um, and basically it's it, yes to all of the above. I mean, it, it, it is really, it, it really is patience. And there's, there's, there's a book from the late 17th century called the Mutus Liber. It's the silent book because there's almost no words in it. It's just a series of images, <clears throat> except at the very end where they have succeeded, they have their, you know, fingers on the lips going, okay, we just showed it to you all, but shh. Right? And what it says is, ora et labora, right? Lege, 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 re lege et invierdes. And so it's like pray and work, right? Then read, right? Read, 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 and then reread, and you will discover. Right. And so what that really is, I found in anything I apply, you know, like learning something from reading, the basic strategy I use is I don't really try to understand it the first time I read it. Right. In other words, what I do is I just, I just, I just read it. I just make sure I say all the words and I get to the end. And there's a certain amount of that, that you will understand. Right. And then it, that, what that does without you resisting it or trying to analyze it, like, what do they mean here? It just, it's just what you had said at first, do you get yourself accustomed to the author's voice? And so this is a way of doing that, right. By just reading it without, I mean, you, know, you try to understand it, but you got to give a little effort, but it's not the thing where you stop and you try to hammer it out right then and there. Right. Because one of the things that goes on too, with this work is. Sometimes in the next paragraph or two, is just the way this art, this author discourses is they take a while to get to their punchline kind of a thing. But in about two, three paragraphs, what's puzzling you is answered, right? Whereas if you stop, you're just circling, 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 and then you go, oh shit, there it is. So it also just kind of lets you ease in to the language and the language of alchemy can be quite dense. And there's a, there's a, this is from experience. So just, you know, take it as you will. There's a, there's a tendency when you first approach it to overinterpret it, to go like, oh, uh, this means that, that means this, this means this. I would say, hold off on that. I mean, you'll get to that point. Really, it is a, just a question, get through the first reading and just, as I say, say all the words and get to the end. And then you know, let it sit for a while and then go back to it. And that's the point. The second reading for me is where then I will struggle over things. Okay. What do they mean by this? 
And maybe in the interim, before rereading it again, I now have a sense of the voice, the time period, who this is. So maybe I might read some, some of the philosophy that adjoins this time period. Maybe I might read some of the theological references that seem to be in this text. So I start to try to give a, another broader context around it that will give insight into some of the language because a lot of the language that's used in these, it's in the air, right? It's not like, I mean, the use of icon and images in 16th century, 15th century, it's, you know, at the sign of the dog, as when you go drinking, you know what I mean? It's nothing. It was a mode, right? Early emojis in a way. Right. You know, it's, so it's not an unusual it's not an unusual kind of a language in sense. So it is, it is this kind of, I don't know where I'm going with this, but no, no. reading of the text. Yes. So the other layer is once you get through the second one, right. And struggle with it. This is where you really, really, really try to get, but if it's still resisting, acknowledge it and then move on. Right? And then once you get through the second one, what you do is you let some time evolve, read some other things around it. And, then, and even other experts, other interpretations, other whatever it might be. And then you come back to it and read it a third time. And you read it sort of a third time kind of straight through. When you hit those places that were naughty, what I do is I just sit with it for a little bit. In other words, it made, it, you know how it is when you try to untangle a, a small chain that's knotted? It's like you don't pull, you just kind of like play with it and get it to relax. Massage it, yeah. Something this type of a thing right and sometimes it opens up sometimes it doesn't so what again you do is consciously go okay i don't know that i don't have an answer for that i'm not going to say yes i'm not going to say no i'll just put that aside for now right? right but you've made a conscious choice to do that and you've identified and then you move on right and then if it's a if it's an alchemical work like a laboratory work at some point that not, you do have to make an interpretation. You just have to go, okay, as I see this, it could be pointing to three different things, right? And you go, all right, let's try number one. Okay. So this is what I mean. You, you make a commitment to that. You've interpreted, you've read it, you've come to an understanding. And this is what alchemy then does, tests it in the world, right? It's like whatever you think you're doing, a material thing, spirit, what have you, you, you put it into the world. The sacred is enacted in the profane. This is outcome. Right. And so that's what you do. Then the next step of the reading is exactly that. Put it into action and then try it out. Read against it, uh, what the book says and what the actual results are. How much of that is operator error? How much of that is malinterpretation? How much of that is in materials in oh you now are into the hall of mirrors <laughs> right but that's where it's you, you, it's the work that kind of grounds it and so that's what's also important in the reading and this is what i mean by dialogue i mean you could read the text but it will only really gain meaning if you engage the text right now how much of this engagement process involves aura or prayer because that is one of the first sections of the theory section of the book and and exactly. i you know i i feel like in my own pursuits and studying this stuff 
the times when I sort of surrendered to not knowing with a mm -hmm. question, you know, exactly. whatever happened uh, in series of time afterwards, the answer came, you know, and right. it, it felt like prayer was the factor involved. So can you expand on that a little bit for yeah. us? Yeah. And, and I think we can, you can even open up even more because prayer has a specific image in mind of supplication and asking it and all these things, which is, which is also correct and true, but it's also just, as you said, it's like, it's, it's an opening up, a opening up of a pathway of reception, if, if you will. Right. It's like, you're kind of getting out of your own way. It, it can be, you can conceive of it as, as meditation, prayer, what have you. What's interesting in that work I was referring to, Brutus Lieber, it is one of the key phrases that are the few things that are written in it is this phrase, ora et labora, right? Pray and work. There's, and the whole process in this, in, this, in this book of images shows a couple working through and making the philosopher's stone, essentially, okay? And it's often referred, oh, this is a couple, right? This is a man and a woman working together. So this is really about the inner work of the, the alchemist unifying with the projection of the anima as a female alchemist. And the whole process here is about that sort of balancing. And that's kind of a, a contemporary union psychological interpretation of it. Two things that are going on. And one is at that time period, this was a thing. There were, there were partners, couples. This was the new medicine that was being made. And so there was a lot of changes that were going on in medicine and the accessibility of doing these alchemical works, which were medicinal works. It's a really surprising explosion of this kind of activity. So what's being depicted in here isn't really unusual, right? Like here's a second, for instance, a little aside, right? Robert Boyle, right? The father of chemistry, right? Well, he had a laboratory. His sister, his older sister had a laboratory, right? Because she was doing alchemical experiments and chemical experiments as well. And she let her younger brother Right, little little Bobby, come on over and use her lab. Right, so it's this very dynamic atmosphere in a sense where this work is going on. So it is depicting physical work, but the aura and labora, that saying goes back. At, I forget whose rules it was. Sixth century uh, monastic rules about work and prayer. Right, and so this becomes. Um, an aspect of, of doing the great work, right? Which is this meditative aspect, right? A prayer aspect, an opening aspect, but something that needs to be grounded in work. And what this uh, particular uh, book, Mutus Lieber is showing, is showing that process as to how to best integrate those two things, right? Is another interpretation. So it's showing the material process, but it's in that material process, plus this meditative thing that comes on, <clears throat> that enables the changes to happen, like psychically, spiritually, what have you. Right. So this is the aura and labor, and you see this in images, like in the 17th century, there's a very famous engraving, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of the, of the, of the alchemist, Kircher, I think it might be. Athenius Kircher? Uh, yeah. And I think it's a tent 
and you see the alchemist praying and then you see that this sort of tent this oratory is in part of a much larger room which is indeed a laboratory so again you have this idea of a space where you will contemplate and meditate what you're doing as well as a place of doom right. and that the two it just and this is the thing with alchemy right the emerald tablet is of the sort of a root text of this and one of the things that it indicates is the fact that in one of the lines, one of the later lines of it, it says the thing about like, well, you know, as the macrocosm was created, so is the microcosm, like the lesson of the great work, and basically your work here. Other phrases within the text suggest that, well, just as what, as all things come from the one, right? So this work is that same way. So what's suggested there is that really any creative work can be the basis for this kind of a meditation, alchemical meditation. It's just a question of finding that harmony of where how these things link up to, to stages almost, because alchemy unfolds in changes expressed through color, expressed through, you know, wherever it is. So you have to find that in your own, in your, in your own work so to speak, to kind of find that. But this is one of the things that, that it alludes to is that any material work, right, can be ritual. Some of this, it's the idea of being able to do something that creates something that has an impact that causes a change. Right. And that's alchemy. And that's also, there's a phrase within the Emerald Tablet, right? this is... You know, this is the secret of talismans, right? Which, but that word, it has a meaning of originally of a, a performance, a ritual and something that ends in a result that has an impact, which is what we understand talismans to be, right? It's sort of you know, engraved, written on, but its point is not its own creation in and of itself, but to affect a change. And this is what the Emerald Tablet speaks of. And this is what alchemy says. It's like you perfect something to its absolute perfection, it can turn around and itself perfect. Right. I, I talk about this sometimes on the show. I make these wire wraps here. And, you know, wow. when you're describing that, it really brings to mind that process because it's extremely meditative, as many mm -hmm. art forms are. But I find that these are talismans the way you're describing them Absolutely. you know there there's a purpose there's an intention and obviously with a crystal there's all sorts of uh, associated energies too have you ever read the sacred art no but uh, that sounds like something i would be oh i think you might because yeah. the neo the neoplatonic writings of like sort of second third fourth century really all deal with this aspect, right, of kind of a, a union with the one, the scent of the soul. And alchemy does it through its material processes by activating that, that kind of inner working, so to speak. But other, other, other means, you know, as well. And I mentioned like, okay, ritual is sometimes, one of the Neoplatonic practices was this thing called the animation of statues. Okay. And the thing is what you would in a work called on the mysteries kind of outlines a lot of this material work um what the neoplatonists viewed was that well god is everywhere 
the Abulgas takes it further and says, well, you know, just as you know, everything is permeated with everything, well, there are things that are solar, right, such as the sun, but some of those solar things are also here on Earth, like gold or amber, sunflower, rosemary. And as you're wanting to build a channel to the gods, you can assemble these things, okay? And as you're assembling it, you are actually activating this sort of the geometry that they represent is being assembled and it starts to activate the geometry of your soul, which is a, you know, a mirror or an exact, you know, whatever of the, the larger geometry of the greater soul, so to speak. And then Moody Amblichus, I think it's he who says this, is like, when you bring these things together, it's not the God, all that's missing, it's like sulfur needs to flame, right? Everything's there and ready to ignite, and that part comes from you. This part comes from your active imagination. So it's you kind of engaging this, and this opens up, and as the Amblichus says, the gods don't descend to us. You know, it's like, yeah, you may make the statue and you may be calling the spirit of the God into it. And it's like, but no, that's not what happens here. It's us who goes to that. But it's through this kind of material work that opens up this channel. And you see this still alive in like early Christian Byzantine Christianity, the work with icons, the incense, the new, I mean, everything is to open up this channel. You read some of the writings and some of the philosophers around that time of some of the empresses praying to an image of Mary. So the image starts to cry, speaking stuff. I mean, it's some pretty intense stuff. It continues on that idea, right? And solely matter. And I, so your work, what you just showed me, is 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 very much that. This is, this is a palace. I don't know what your intent was. I don't know what you were meditating on, but their idea would be that somehow is, is part of this assemblage. It, it kind of resonates within there to, to, to use a, a word. It may not be a material resonance. Right. So this is, a, this is a way one could work. Mm, absolutely. And what's coming to mind is this process of almost emulating the creator through being a creator yourself. And, and as exactly you it. kind of put with, you know, you, you sort of attune yourself to the right frequency by having, you know, all of these different components that sort of open that channel up. Wow. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly it. it, it it's, you know, it's the creator thing, you know, and I mean, I, I, I was raised in a, you know, Catholic and you, what you always hear is like, oh, well, God, you know, made man in his image. And it's like, well, in that sense, yeah, who we create, we create something out of nothing. Right. You know, and we can, we can make sounds and, you know, make people laugh, make people cry, make people make the same sounds with me, right. Get people to sing along kind of a thing. It's, it, it's like, it's amazing what, what, what we can make out of nothing. Right. Or all what seems to be not. There's always some kind of a substrata there. Right. But that goes back to the very early, early Greek philosophers and teacher of Socrates. Her name was Diotima. And in one of the dialogues, he, she's quoted as saying, it's like anyone who makes something out of nothing is a poetess, right? He's a poet. But it, what she's saying is really a composer. 
And that's what the word comes down to. But the word for alchemy is the same word, right? So anyone who makes something out of nothing is an alchemist. Right. Kind of how you could also, if you wanted to push the translation, yeah. better to say a maker, right? Or a composer, because that's what alchemy does. It breaks something down into its elements, right? And then recomposes it. And this is what a poem does. It takes elements, in Greek, the same word, stoichia, right? For grammar elements and material elements, you rearrange that and you have the language of matter. Right. And it seems like this language of matter has almost gotten ahead of itself to the point where now people take that model of understanding the universe and apply it past the model to what now they think they're separate. But really, I think the true value in what you so brilliantly said here today is that all of the elements are inside of us. That's what makes this microcosm macrocosm exchange possible. Right. So there is no separation. There is. I mean, there is and there isn't. That's the thing. I mean, you know, yes, we are here. I'm Brian, Gilmore. There's a computer. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I don't pay my bills. The electricity will go off. You know, there, there is. But yes, that's exactly it. Right. It's, and that's, this is what alchemy does. It, it kind of brings you so deep into a vision of like matter reality construction that you kind of come out the other side. It, it's just as you would in physics, right? If you just keep on going layer after layer after layer, it kind of gets pretty empty down there. And then you realize, okay, what's going on? You know, the same in the opposite direction. There's right. an image in alchemy out of a manuscript called the Splendor Souls. Uh, one of the most magnificent ones. If you look this up and you go to the British library, they have it fully digitized and you can get really close up on it. Quite beautiful. And there's, I think it's plate 12. There's, there's what's known as a rebus, a two headed character with wings. It's part of the process. One hand is holding an egg. The other hand is holding a shield. And the shield is a representation of earth, water, air, fire, and that implies what goes beyond. And then the egg. What the text is also speaking of is how, okay, these are the five elements, fire, air, earth, water, and space. And it's speaking of both creation. And then anytime you see an egg, it both represents the beginning as well as the end. It can be the philosopher's stone or the elements that will go into making it. But the text says that the outer shell represents earth. There's a layer of water. Then there's a thin membrane of air, then a fire. And then within, deep within, basically you check the little blood clot of that they say is the ether and then beyond. So they had this vision of matter in the sense that just as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you enter into this eternity, right? And then the same thing they're saying on the macrocosmic level, where we're standing right now is earth, water, air, fire, and then it opens up and then eternity. So really what you have between these two eternities is this thin foam of constantly evolving, churning back, okay? And that's what alchemy explores. It's an ascent through descent. It's an attempt to reach through that, that kind of vision of unity through understanding sort of the emptiness of matter, as it were. And so when you are working, it's not just a question of like wanting to make a compact, wanting to make a result. Well, that, that's what the tests are. It's more like, okay, what do I really see? 
what what is really going on here, right? And that gets you to start thinking about things differently. Other thing that happens is the more you start to do something, the more it starts to show up. And then that's where things get interesting. This is where the, the inner work starts to show up and point in that direction. Right. And that's the other benefit of doing material work. It grounds, it, it grounds your mind at something concrete. And the more you do something, the more you start to dream. And some of these dreams will help solve the problem in the lab or in your life or what have you. And other ones will suggest a deeper way, you know, kind of like knock on that door of ascent. If you right um, now, when it comes to the, the healing process, you mentioned medicine, but I think it's important to ask for clarification's sake that, you know, what was intended to heal the process itself or the, you know, potion that was created as a result of the process. Right. It seems like the process itself is more of the intended Probably for the individual mm. can be seen that way, but actually no. Uh, what a lot of this alchemy was, particularly as you get later and later, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it's an interesting, oh, this is like an over, 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 over generalization. But generally what happens when alchemy is first introduced into the next culture as the translations come in is, holy shit, you can make gold for real? Yeah. <laughs> right? You got that technology? Okay, let's get cracking. And so you see the early translations read like chemical chemistry books. Once you understand the language, right. Mm -hmm. Then starts to come, well, no, this is, and this is also part of the older traditions is no, it's all about the pursuit of wisdom, right? The closer we can understand the creator's mind through creation, the closer we come to the creator, right? And then as always from the beginning and even in the older stuff, there is this medicinal aspect of it. That really what you're talking about in any way is the healing of the material world. So gold is, lead is really just in very sick gold. Okay, there's one way of seeing it. And what the Philosopher's Stone would do would bring health and balance again, because health is an idea, the balance of four elements, humans in the human body, the four elements in matter. So this is what the stone would bring that. If you were sick, you could take a little bit of wine, what have you, and your humors would immediately balance, right? If you were spiritually troubled, it would do the same thing. So there's, there's different aspects. Some of it is, you know, dead on material, right? And so that's the part that, that you really can replicate and you actually can do. I don't remember exactly what your question was that led into those three kind of definitions, but, oh, medicine, right? Medicine was always there. When they are speaking about healing, they are speaking about making something that will heal. I mean, that is across the board. It's, there is a sense of the, as I just said, sort of a spiritual healing as well is also, is also implied with it. Right. As well as healing poverty. Mm. Right? And I don't mean that to see, it was the idea of, well, now, and you'll even hear them say this, and this will also cure poverty. Shit, yeah. I make some gold, that cures my poverty. Yeah. yeah. Um, Just yours. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. But, well, what is this idea, though, in the early writing, in every writing, is that this, you don't keep it. Mm -hmm. That gold that you made is to be used for, you know, feeding, feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, 
you know, under, you know, underwriting orphanages, things like this. And you'll, you'll see writings of early alchemists that will say, yeah, we made the philosopher's stone twice. And out of this, we were able to make so many pounds of gold and we established an orphanage. We did this thing for old people and, and we built the church, you know, right. um, in Indian alchemy, there's a text that says the way you test if your medicine is pure, that all the poison and mercury has been removed is you take some iron and you put the medicine on it. And if it transmutes it into gold, the medicine is good. And now you have gold. What do you do with that? So you are allowed to keep 10% to help pay for the costs of your lab. The rest has to be given away. The rest has to feed and clothe. Right. Otherwise you're, you're on dodgy karmic ground, you know, right. what are you doing this for? It's not for the money. Granted you have expenses. So, you know, take a little for yourself for that, but the rest goes out. And this is something you see throughout alchemy. So you get a sense that it's not just this, what power, what money, what, you know, secret knowledge can I get that the other kids don't have, but it's like, what understanding and what ethical open way can I turn this around to you know, heal, cure, uplift, what have you, you know, the world, community, family, what have you. Right. And that's the thing you do find in real alchemy, whatever form it takes, is that at the, it should be at the heart of it. And that's like kind of like a smell test of it. Mm. You know? It's like, what do they really do this for? You know? Well, and that selflessness I'm so glad you pointed it out because I feel like the skeptical angle on this topic, they always plunge in with the, well, you can't actually turn lead to gold. And, and honestly, I don't find that even relevant to the conversation, but I think that the, it, it, finish. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. it's all right. It's all right. I think the, the real point is that, you know, there is this sort of selflessness, this divine providence, even component mm -hmm. that the disbeliever will just, you know, inherently never experience right. because of they're coming to the table with the wrong, you know, frequency. Right. But even if they had that same idea, they're still missing the point, right? Because even the early alchemists go, well, what we're talking about when we say gold is not the gold of ordinary people. We are talking about philosophical gold, gold that has been made through this process of meditation and philosophy pursuit of wisdom, right? And when you end up with this, I mean, there's a very early text, um, Zosimos of Panopoli, right? Third century, fourth century AD, uh, around Alexandria, right? And it's basically what we know of a lot of early alchemies from his writings. He had a partner, Theosabia, and there's, a, as most of that stuff at the time, a lot of it is dialogue. Right. So and so says this, it's, it's like kind of a debate, instruction, these kinds of things. And one of the questions she asks is, why do we keep this such a secret? And why do we keep this, you know, what we do here, like so other people don't understand? And his basic answer is, first of all, there's a lot of people out there that are idiots that will never understand what we're doing and think we are actually making real gold, but not making philosophical gold. And he goes, if they really, if we said what we were doing, they would think it would be just like glass making, right? In other words, that what they are really engaged in is a known craft. It wasn't those glass making aspects to it. So what they're saying is if you looked at it from the outside, and this is true, I think in like experiments I've replicated in making alchemical silver, making alchemical gold, 
you do end up with stuff that's like silver on the outside, copper on the inside. There's a way, it's called depletion, but there's a way you go through these stages of decomposition. Where the stuff is in the piece of equipment. It's, we're not visual here, but it's sort of a circulatory thing. There's liquid on the bottom, solid up top, the liquid evaporates, dissolves the solid. And there's this process that replicates with sedimium in the tablet. So there's a process going on, there's a material process going on. But they did not think they were actually making the gold of ordinary people. They were making from the soft gold. Were they doing a material process that ended up with something that if you do really carefully, really is gold, like the gold on the outside, right? Salini talks about this in Natural History, about how the gates of one of the seven gates of Jerusalem was actually fabricated with this thing called Corinthian gold. And that's the process, 10%, 10% uh, silver, 25% gold, and then 65% copper. Right. Mix those together. Uses pickling, takes out everything except the gold on the surface. You burnish it, it looks like gold. Except like a third the weight and a, like a tenth the cost, right? Now you tell me what artist is interested in that, <laughs> right? Right. And I'm saying this is, this is the grounding of it. But at the same time, you bring it through these processes, it follows this philosophical one. It follows the Nag Hammadi... Uh, apocryphon of John of this ascent and descent into Hades to, to free the imprisoned bodies. There's these connections that go on and that speak of it as this integrated process. So you're right, someone looking at it, oh yeah, the thing they're going to make gold with these ideas. And it's like, well, first of all, you can make gold with these ideas, meaning that the universe, as we see, is made up of substrata and particles just maybe can't do it with vinegar and lead, right? You might need some higher energies to kind of get it going, if you know what I mean. Uh, but the theory and the concept is that. Right. And that's why, like, Isaac Newton and Boyle, they were true believers. So much so, well, they just showed it didn't work with vinegar and with lead. Kind of thing. But they laid the foundation for what would actually cause transmutations. And this is something that I think, you know, most people just don't understand is that the modern, brilliant, genius, inventor, thinker, philosophers, all of these great scientific minds of the past 600 or so years were very curious in alchemy. It was only up until maybe pre-World War One and Two that they kind of stopped mm -hmm. that interest, at least on the mainstream level, because I know there are... Yeah. Plenty yeah. of people who probably kept it going, at least in their own, the privacy of their own right. homes. Right. As a, as a, I don't know. It's like, I think it enables it then to get back to its own kind of like pure philosophical meditative self, if you know what I mean. Because really at this heyday of like the 17th century, it really is major discoveries of, I mean, industrial national importance. Okay, like as in, for example, one of the great alchemists of Germany in the 1600s, Rudolf Glauber. Okay, one of the processes he, I believe it's him, if not, it's some other German alchemist around there, but it's like him who industrializes it, is the making of potassium nitrate, okay, saltpeter, key ingredient for gunpowder. Okay, Kaiser's interested, you know, you're going to get full support for your lab now, right? So, 
he realizes kind of early on in the work that transmutation isn't really happening, right? But all these other things are. So how do you do this? Before that time period, you wanted saltpeter, you wanted potassium nitrate. You had to have a lot of horse stables. And it was this, this, this process of harvesting and extracting. You can do it, but all of a sudden you have this thing where you can kind of synthesize it out of almost nothing. Yeah. So this is kind of going on. Some of the key alchemists in England, you read what they're up to, they're also investing in mines of lead and antimony. It's like, okay, if we can make gold, get a corner on the lead and the antimony market, right? So there's this real burgeoning of sort of industry, 16, 1700s, I mean, national competitions of the bloodiest kind, and each one trying to get an edge on each other. Right. And now you have this cutting edge science. Right. Oh. So there's a, there's a, there's everything. So that's where it's, to me, it's one of the more fascinating times, but it, it, it really starts splitting out into clearly what's going to interest the greater minds in this are, are going to be the problems of physics, of chemistry, of engineering, of, of those kinds of things that are going to bring it forward, right? Cause that's, what's going to get the support. Right. The mystics and the dreamers, the artists, they'll continue on, you know, they'll visit us. <laughs> well, well, what's so fascinating is in uh, New England, you know, I'm from Connecticut, live in Connecticut, mm -hmm. been here my whole life. And, and one of the things that I found so fascinating, and I heard this on a podcast many years ago, and it stuck with me, and I didn't really find any information to add up until this year. But I heard that there was a governor of Connecticut who was an alchemist, right? And I oh, for yeah. forgot the name, but I found out Winthrop, this year, I think. John Winthrop Jr. And he was I believe a, that's correct. And he was a big reason why the witchcraft trials stopped in Connecticut, where they were some of the most brutal in comparison to Massachusetts, because he had a lot of knowledge about the philosophy of alchemy, and he said show me the magic that these witches are doing. Yeah, and, yeah. and he was kind of like laughing the whole way. Cause he's like, and this isn't real like, magic there's a rationality. There's a rationality right. that's involved in alchemy. I mean, it's not just hooky pooky. I make whatever up and I, I can, and then it gets, you know, no, there's a real, there's a real, it is science. I mean, it's mythology writings on alchemy say it, it's like, here's the materials, right? I set them before you. I identify them so you'll have no mistake. Here is the process. If you do what I do, you will get the same result. Right. This is one of the cornerstones of science is like reproducibility and a so-called transparency of like processing material. This text claims to be transparent because it's a written like, transcript of a dialogue between two people. One is showing the other the work and the other one is just, you know, so we don't see it and hear it, but the people involved, here is the work. This is what we call this. This is what we call that. Right? So it always had this kind of a rational. Thing. So I'm not really surprised that somebody who practices it because it's not magic. Right? right? It works with a natural philosophy that at the time they called natural magic that evolves into engineering and science. It was like, how do you explain a magnet? 
much. Right. Right. Well, and it goes back to Arthur C. Clarke's famous quote about any, you know, technology sufficiently yeah, advanced right. appears to be magic to those not advanced enough or something right. along those paraphrased lines. How are we, how am I conjuring your image into my living room? Exactly. Oh, I contacted Zoom, <laughs> the great Zoom. I said certain passwords and there you are, you know. Exactly. This is magic, but that's exactly it. The conjuration of spirits, the giving of words, and then the connection, and you banish each other. (laughs) Well, in the case of John Winthrop Jr., as you said, you know, the methodology behind his practice informed him to a level where he wasn't persuaded by the superstitions of the Puritans in his colony and the reason why he loved the connecticut colony when he first came to it was because there was the well there's a high concentration of mica in the soil which at that that time they thought might lead to silver mines which it didn't unfortunately for him but but yeah he did end up kind of claiming a lot of connecticut for the british until the the war settled that (laughs) and yeah it's just so fascinating to find out that this guy was an alchemist and and so close to home There's a lot in early American history because you could do, if you look at Harvard, look at their dissertations from the 1600s, a lot of the dissertations in philosophy, natural philosophy, these kind of things are on the philosopher's stone, reasons why it can be done, you know, and then someone takes their PhD, their doctorate on their, that's their thesis and this is what they argue. There was an alchemist out of out of the Americas, was born in Bermuda, I think went to Harvard, and then went to England. His name is George Starkey. And he was a Robert Boyle's assistant, right? Except it was Starkey who was really kind of teaching Boyle his chemistry. Now, Starkey was also writing books under a, under a pseudonym, Iranius Philolithes, an anonymous lover of truth. And he was talking about the great work. Now, Boyle at this point is really believing that in the great work. And if he really works hard and demonstrates that he's working hard, the adepts will get wind and the adepts will show up and teach him. This is what he believes. He really believes in this adept philosophy of you do the work, they're out there, they'll come and they'll teach you. And all the while he's doing this work, trying to do it, being taught by Starkey, who he thinks is just, you know, a very smart lab assistant from the from the colonies, but is actually the guy writing these texts that he's trying to figure out. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Right. Um, the adept that he didn't American, know. But, it, but it, it's an American alchemist in England. I mean, it's just, it's like, you know. But this is the thing. It was, it's not a university topic, but at the same time with medicine and in philosophy, you'll see debates around because it is questioning the, the universe. It's like, does the universe work this way? Can matter change from one thing to the other? What are the reasons for that? They will show me some experiments. And that's what really picks up 17th century is that you can start doing experiments. You start having instruments that you can, you know, really measure things. Or stuff's left over that doesn't, you know, alchemy says, or like a medicinal alchemy says, anything's made up of you know, mercury, sulfur, and salt. Right? So a plant, for instance, its sulfur is an essential oil. And the spirit is an alcohol that's you know fermented by it. And the salt comes from the body. You burn the plant, you get the ash and the salt. So now you have, right? Component parts of, of that, anything, yeah. 
Yeah, but if you do that, right? So you take the essential, so you do a steam distillation of essential oil. So in the receiving flask, you have water with some other things in it. You can smell it, you can taste it, and on top of it, it is floating, like say, rosemary. Remove the rosemary oil, and you have that body of water there that's called a hydrosol, right? Alchemy, you don't need that. You could throw it, right? But everybody who does herbalism goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's some good stuff in here. And then alchemy adapts later and goes, well, okay, no, this is really the, the you know, sulfur of water. And so all of a sudden now, well, all right, well, what is this thing? If you said there were three principles, but now there were three principles of each principle, you know, and all of a sudden now you're starting to break down matter and you're running out of leaves. And then, you know, some people start to know a pattern, notice a pattern of how these things react with each other. You notice every time you use one of these, you need two of these. And then someone starts to figure out the periodic table, what's going on. And then that becomes a puzzle. So you're not so much interested in, you are interested in changing lead into gold, but you think, well, if I solve this puzzle first, I can do it. Right. 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 Yeah. You essentially giving yourself something to do to, to make the money come in. I mean, that's turning lead to gold. And you're doing it. But then at the same time, you're making these real material discoveries that you're getting a further understanding of it. Even if you may be thinking, just around the corner, I'm going to have the secret for turning lead into gold. And it does. It comes around what, with, what's his name? Rutherford, Ernest Rutherford in the teens, when first atomic kind of does a transmutation, I forget, of oxygen into nitrogen or nitrogen into oxygen by bombarding it with something. And it's like he doesn't want to, you read the essay he writes on this, it's kind of funny because he says, I don't want to use transmutation. I'll be laughed out of the profession. He goes, but what else do you call it? What else do you call it? Here's an element that once was, is no longer is, and this other element is there. I did this to do it. You do it, you can do it too. You know right. what I mean? And off we go. You know, you can hear Hiroshima and it's like, <laughs> well, and so many people point to that moment in history as maybe a possible case for all the weird ufo paranormal strangeness that's occurred since i personally think that that stuff's been going on for a long time but it is you know reality you're playing with the fabric mm -hmm. of reality when you do something like that i mean hydrogen right. is the first element because it has just sure. one proton it's supposedly you know the i guess the imminent you know precursor okay. to yeah. every other yeah. element it's the building block of it all and right you don't go anywhere unless you got that first and that's everywhere you right know, you start playing with that to where all our eye, every element, as you probably know by now, every element in your body was once in a star. I mean, that's like, you know, think about how many cycles of stars that has to go through there to creep up to the elements because each one is this first, you know, kind of an assembly line of stuff. So you get helium and then it keeps going, you know, and then it boom, blows it out across the universe. It starts coalescing and here we are. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's pretty something. Well, but yeah, I, I wanted to to bring up a show I do called the Elemental Philosophy Forum, where a buddy and I we go through different elements and we try to find you know maybe some odd, strange history associated with that element. And mm -hmm. one thing that we found when looking into cobalt was that the German word for cobalt also means goblin. 
And I'm like, yes. I'm like, that's so interesting that they must be running into goblins when they're mining or something, you know? Uh-huh. Or I think there might be a deeper root. Tell us. You know, but it is, this is, this is what I find like, and this is, this is another element of the naming of like art materials, mm-hmm. right? The naming of the materials used in alchemy will sometimes show their origins and, and the path that they travel. And that's sometimes useful if you're working and trying to figure out an alchemical process, it, it, it's, it's really good to try to find an artist, some artist manuals from that time period. And just kind of cross-reference things. You'll find descriptions that will line up that will start to fill in. Because she'll some of the stuff is oh mythically inflected, let's say. And what I mean by that, they'll say, take the best copper from Cyprus. Right? Do you really need to go to Cyprus to get the best copper? Or can you get a best copper from Arizona that has some really good copper as well? And it's like, well, mythically, you kind of want Cyprus because that's where Venus first stepped on ground, right? So mythically, it has a deeper kind of mythic connection. Maybe in the Renaissance, this was a source of really good copper there that you could work with. But the point is, you know, you can still work with good copper. So reading it, you start to, you can start to break through kind of the mythic layers you can work with those mythic layers should you choose like, well, you know what? I want it from Cyprus where Venus steps, you know, cause it's got some extra mojo there. This is Aphrodite. This is the metal of Aphrodite. So sure. Why not have it where she manifests? So this is the thing, but you can still work alchemically with copper from Arizona, let's say. Well, on that point, I'd like maybe if we could to elaborate on how each of the major alchemical metals got associated with their respective planets. Cause I, we, we've kind of been saving those elements for later on in the series when we have a little bit more information and, you know, because those seem like they'll garner more, um, interest mythologically and whatnot, but how did they get associated with planets in the first place? Very, very, very early on. I mean, it's some of the earliest and they shift except the ones that don't. And it's really interesting. Mercury is all over the place. Mercury gets associated with, and you go, well, of course, it's mercury. You know, it's a slippery little sucker, and, but not just the metal. It does get identified with something called electrum, which is a mix of silver and gold and copper. It, it forms, but it is a mix of the metals. And so sometimes that's associated. Early Greek, early Greek material, early Greek writings associate the metals with the planets. And it's like gold is always silver. I mean, gold is always the sun, silver is always the moon, right? And it, it just, I think, I think we, I think anybody could go, oh yeah, right? You know what I mean? We just, there's something about it that you say that, I don't know, it'd be interesting to go around the world and just at random hand somebody like a disc of gold, a disc of silver and ask them, which is the sun, which is the moon? You know, I think you'll find that. I think there's that whether you would hand a disc of tin and they'd say Jupiter is another question, but it comes very early on. Right. And like iron being Mars, right. That I and Mars was known as the God of war and the surface of Mars is red. The literal is iron oxide. 
right? So it is iron. It, it's just all these kinds of things that right. Really and they have all of this iron that very early. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off, but they have all this no. iron that falls from the sky that then they would take and turn into daggers and call daggers from heaven. You ever hear of the meteoric <laughs> iron? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The Damascus, uh, Damascus steel. Exactly. This is a, one of our first findings as humans was in the desert, the meteorite falls. And they'd find the iron and it's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> pretty cool stuff. Yeah. You know, that fell from here. You know, that's pretty impressive. But you point out it's the crazy. iron oxide on Mars, it's very, it's uncanny. It's almost yeah. to the degree of the, like the Dogon people identifying Sirius B before they ever had a telescope. It's like, well, how, how oh, yeah. did you know yeah. that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of the theory on that is that it was a lot, lot, lot brighter a long, long, long time ago. Okay. And that has, that has kind of kept up with the oral tradition and knowledge that it's there. Mm. Okay. But, you know, as a kid. If you ask me where I was from, I would point to the play it is. <laughs> right on. <laughs> it's I, like, I'm not from here. Uh, where are you from? I'm from there. Just waiting to go home. Yeah. Uh, they said they dropped me off for some milk. I said, I'll be right back. I come back. They're gone. Mother. Seven sisters. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, know, well, you know, on the point of uh, universalism, I mean, the seven sisters, they're in like every group of uh mythologies around the world there's stories yes. of the seven sisters and yeah, you know yeah yeah very fascinating it, it does and it is an impressive constellation I mean, just just as a learner if you ever go out with somebody at night that's never spent time they see this that's like usually one of the first things they'll ask about like i'd like the sky i'd like to try to spend time i'd try to go out with friends who haven't and one of the first things is like what's that it's like, what's what? It's like, it's like a little, little different. It's like, oh, that's the play it is. But it is, there is something that's really drawing to it. I find, right. you know, I mean, enough as a kid, you know, knowing I can't be from here because everybody's so screwed, right? I got to be from somewhere else. Where? There, that'll do. <laughs> you know? I hear that. I've always been Mark the Martian just by, you know, namesake, but yeah, yeah. Pleiadian yeah. seems cool too. I, uh, for me as a kid, it was like when the first Star Trek came on and Spock was there, Right. I felt like, you know, they say like, you know, you finally identify with somebody. I was like, oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> finally. Very cool. <laughs> Someone who makes sense, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Right. I love that. I get that. I get a vague vibe of Spock from you, sir. I, I... <laughs> so I'm wondering, you know. A big part of at least astrology is this association with the planets and even oh, like, absolutely. you know, doing certain things based on what energy is highest in the sky. Jupiter is up in the sky today, so I'm going to do something in conjunction with Jupiter. Did that come from alchemical workings? Like, did people find more success doing you certain know, I, processes I, in I those conditions? I don't know. I mean, later on, I don't know if, because, I mean, here's the thing. Yes, it is, it is used as a guide. It was used. You'll find charts for things. But once you get into it, it, it's, you'll find rough guidelines and they tend to be more seasonal. Like if you're doing the great work started at spring. And the reason is because that's when, cre that's when creation started. Mm. You know, all the planets lined up at the zero point of Aries, when God created the universe, and then he said, go. And so that's the beginning of creation. So almost all the earliest alchemical texts and that sort of tradition gets passed on. When you start the great work, 
you can start it at any time, you know, but you'll find greater success and greater ease if you work with nature. So by starting in spring, you're working with nature. Right. But there are different, there are different, if you want to say astrology, there are different timing and planetary systems that are used in alchemy. So you will find, and particularly in medicinal, because they're trying to diagnose the disease and on the basis of that, and astrology would be used for that, they can develop a medicine. But what I see happening in looking at like lab notebooks from the 17th century, they're not really timing things to certain events in the heavens. They're just getting on with the work and uh, reporting on that. You go back earlier, you will find things saying, well, I cast a chart to go do this. This will be the best time to engage in that, right? So the answer is both kind of yes and no, because if you do a lot of this work, you can't be reading. I mean, you can't be waiting for, you know, two years from now with that particular, you might do that. You may set up knowing that's coming experiments around that, but you might still do those experiments anyway, right? But there are other timing systems. One of the, one of the ones I've seen in a Byzantine writing of the seventh century, Stephanos of Alexandria, he's describing the arrangement of the planets in the sky and how the moon is moving across them. And he says, this is very much like the process in the lab as the, as this unfolds in stages, right? So you're having, he's not doing measurements, right? He's not like figuring what sign this is in relation. He's looking naked eye and seeing where the positions of the planets are in relation to each other. It's not even like he's talking constellations. He's saying, here are the metals. So here's silver, right? It's approaching you know, it's approaching Mercury and beneath that is the sun. Okay. Because this is kind of what's happening in the lab right here. So he's connecting these kind of planetary things. And this is, this is also how the metals are connected. The, in the main, in a lot of alchemical theory, the, the metals arise out of this interaction of the elements with an infusion of planetary force or energy. So if Mars is dominant and the earth is in a particular configuration and the elements are mixing in a certain way, you'll get off. And this goes back, as I'm saying. So then, so it happens very early on. So, I mean, as you do these things, you, you'll find some of it going early with some shifting of identification of what planets are. But by the time you get to like eighth, ninth century, it's pretty fixed, right? And then by the time you get to Europe, it's done. It's still, these, these are what the, this is what the signs are. These are what the planets are. This is the metals it's associated with. Here are the herbs, here are the gems, here are the, it's taken that time to kind of work that all out, but it right. becomes fixed. Right. Now on the point of maybe going back a little bit to mm -hmm. the emerald tablet i'm wondering if we can get maybe a little bit more of a 101 on this itself because i've heard a lot of new age people talk about this you know everybody talks about right this. and and i'm wondering you know is there an actual piece of emerald when was it carved you know and like what's the right. story where does this go well, here's from? here's okay here's here's what is like factual Right. That you can go and you can go say, okay, here, somebody attested to this in this year, and this is what they wrote about. Okay. There's no material evidence for any of this right? in terms of, is there a tablet? Is there a stone? 
right? So what was, what was, what does that word smaragdina or asmarud in Arabic mean, right? Is it emerald? And actually what the word points to is a green quartz, is a, which was used in, you know, displays and things like this of great importance and of great beauty. It's a green quartz. So this is what they feel if this was an engraving that was in existence and wasn't on emerald, like a big, because this also took to a tablet made of emerald. It just, yeah, that would be a very large gemstone to work from. Not saying you wouldn't have it, couldn't have it, but the fact that within the mineralogy of the time period in there, there was this material that was quartz and was used and you can get big sheets of it enough. So if it was no evidence for it. So there are several stories as to how it was discovered. The one I believe that's the oldest is from an Arabic text from the eighth century, 700 AD. And it's supposed to be an Arabic translation of a work of a Greek writer, Apollonius of Tyana, actually, of like around the first century AD. But it, this text is, exists in 800 AD. And what he says is Apollonius, and I forget where it was in Syria, maybe Damascus, somewhere in, in that area, because uh, this is where Apollonius traveled and was around. And as generally as that story goes is there was a statue in the square or somewhere beneath, and it said, I stand on the truth or I stand on wisdom or something like that. And he passed the statue every day. But one day there was an earthquake. And so as he passes the statue, it's a little disrupted and it's a crack at the base, but he feels this very cold air coming up from it. And he looks and he sees there's a space, kind of opens this up a bit, and there's a stairway down. Right? And he takes the stairway down, you know, lights a torch or something, and uh, sees there this statue of Hermes, and he's holding the emerald tablet to him. And in it, it says, true no doubt about it the above comes from the below and the below comes from the above all things you know this type of a thing that goes on and it's basically a creation text it's how the universe got started it's how it operates and it's how in the original sons of deception this is how the alchemists were called sons of deception with the urges the, the thaumaturges the sons of deception this is the method they Right? That if you want to do a working of wonder, will you follow that same working that the one that creates the macrocosm does? Right? Because all creation is the same. The father is the sun, the mother is the moon. So you get this idea of an alternation. The wind carries it in the belly, right? So you get this idea of this arising, this vapor that comes up, but the earth nourishes it. So this descent happens where then the earth brings it. And so the Emerald Tablet describes this. So it's both an alchemical process, but it's describing a more broad kind of creative process as well. And the thing that's interesting, the earliest version of it, most people I think who are familiar with the Emerald Tablet um, would remember the first phrase or the most memorable phrase is the above comes from, uh, the below comes from as above, so below. As below, so above. It's like this idea that whatever is going on is mirrored on earth. Whatever is on earth is mirrored in heaven. The originals, both in the Arabic and the Latin, actually say that the above comes from the below, and the below comes from the above. 
And so what it implies is in creation ongoing, each one dependent on the other, which is this intense cycling process that the universe recreates itself every billionth of a second, so to speak. And this fits in with the hermetic philosophical atmosphere or the, the writings at the time, the general, is that the world was in constant creation, arising, destroying, enduring, coming and going, but it's this constant journey. Hence the snake eating its tail symbol. Or yes. Even, you know, I was looking into a little bit of um, speculative geology, and they're saying that the North Pole and the South Pole might work in this way, where the North Pole sort of uh, is like a mouth, and, you know, the South Pole is sort of like the, you know, everything comes out and grows back towards well, the, the mouth. This is true. This is about how a magnetic field can be, can be thought of, is that it is this sort of cyclical toroid sort of a thing yeah it's also the plate tectonics if you understand it's the uh there's the adduction and the induction right the atlantic they're spreading apart and in the pacific it's going down or vice versa but it's 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 that type of circulation it's what forms clouds right that same idea is that the, the water warms it transmutes into air it rises it condenses and it comes down and so in these circulatory processes, that's what, that's what goes on is that what's happening is, is an embodiment of all these forces, heavenly and earthly. Right. This is what Talcum does. It tries to bring them both in and activate them to the most. So. Right. But then there were two other sort of like stories as to how this was found, that this was really, it was found at the time I was at Sarah of, of Abraham biblical time they found it i forget what the other one is but the but it's the same idea is that somebody went down into this cave or this underground passage and found a statue of hermes with this tablet engraved upon which was this was this text right and that's just something that gets repeated repeated but there's no there's no material well, I, I asked because the first time I encountered this text was with the Kabbalion, which is, you know, written allegedly by the three initiates. And that was the reason why I bought the book, because I'm like, who are these three initiates? I got to yeah. learn about whatever, you know, they're so worried it's about. It's a guy in the 1920s. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and I wonder if there, if you found, you know, working for Wiser, if you found out who those folks were, was that just a gimmick to call themselves the that three was, initiates? This was his, this was his, this was his way of putting this knowledge down and getting it out. Right. In a way that would, I mean, I don't know what his motivations were. I, I forget the guy's name right offhand, but I mean, here's the thing. This is like, I mean, this was when I was at Wiser's, this was like, uh, this was like one of the big books. People were constantly coming. There was that and a handful of other ones. I forget some of the names of it, but this was a big one. And quite oddly, I only read this for the first time about two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, it just, it wasn't what I was looking for. Well, you had your eye on the obscurities that I'm sure. I the, had my the, eyes on, on the, like trying to find actual alchemical texts mm, by alchemists. Right, right. 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 And this had a a mental spiritual aspect to it which i was i was interested in but not very much right right yeah i mean i was in other areas but but this just wasn't resonating right and again it was mostly because all of my time and energy was 
you know, banging my head against Paracelsus. Okay. Right. That, that kind of occupies your energy. You needed some uh, more meat to but chew also, on. Like working at Weiser's, I guess the fact that, it, I mean, I looked at it, I read it, and I felt that it just didn't have what I was necessarily looking for at that time. Right. And it's also one of those sort of things like, I never went to the top of the Empire State Building until about five years ago. Right. So it's one of those things like, well, it's always around. I have these more pressing things to do. Eventually I'll get to it. But, but here's the thing. It's like one of the big debates around it was knowing the authorship. I forget the guy's name, but it, it is. He wrote other books that have, that are like, he quotes himself from his other books that he names himself with. There's a, there's a rhythm of the language. It's like, and it's acknowledged that this man is the author. And I can only imagine it's like two things. One, you call it that, it protects you, right? And it adds a kind of panache as well as a, it's not about me, it's about the words. Right. Right. So, so if you're thinking this is from some guy from upstate New York, right? That has some great insights and writes in this way. You, you, you know, John, John McSmith would have you and it's like, oh, are you going to read up? Well, the three initiates. Right. It's almost like Don Juan and, and Castaneda, you know, Don Juan exactly. was his, you know, persona through the book. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's not to say that they aren't speaking truths. Right. Right. It's not to say they aren't. It's just what, what the debates were still are. It's like, is it hermetic? And it's like, well, yes, it is. It is of that stream of thought. It happens to be 20th century hermetism, updated, modified, pushed into certain things with his some inventions added in. But yeah, there's, there are things that are very harmonious with the Corpus Hermeticum from the, you know, second century AD. That it's like you, but you can't say, you know, it was written back then. Right. But him doing this is of that tradition. Because the Corpus Hermeticum compiled back then was ascribed to Hermes 600 years earlier. So, you know, Hermes, what are you going to say? Trickster and thief. Right, right, right. (laughs) And there's Mercury again. (laughs) Yep. You've got to keep your eye on him. He'll lead you on, as you know. And then what I like to think of, he's the one that will lead you to to Hades and kind of leave you there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we've seen some movies like that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta keep an eye on it. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's all it's all of this kind of a mix of practical stuff, mythology, history, you know, in terms of trying to interpret and understand this this kind of material. Right. Well, well, taking it to maybe the opposite side of the spectrum, because obviously that is a, a tremendous amount of work. Very beautiful, as you said at the beginning. You know, there are museums that are taking this emerald tablet translation and putting in their mm-hmm. collections. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you have these really cool zines, which I oh, think yeah. are really a part of like the New York culture, you know, like being in a city, I'm sure. Like I said, I'm from Connecticut, so I don't live in the city, but going there, that's one of my favorite things is picking up little pieces of ephemera and bringing them back home, yeah. you know? So yeah. tell us how this got it inspired. Been- yeah, and this is, well, got, uh, this was something I've been doing since the 70s. I mean, right. smaller versions, things like this, kind of mad postings in neighborhoods, this, this sort of mad screes of visionary material stamped out and whatever. This whole thing of the zines started 
I give talks a place, through a place called Morbid Anatomy and, and some others. But this was a place where it was an actual physical location, Morbid Anatomy Museum in Berkeley. And I would give talks on various topics. And I was giving one on the homunculus, which is artificial life. And I had agreed, I never gave illustrated talks because there's a lot not, I mean, you think of alchemy and you think, yeah, really great pictures, the mythical, but they're not on topics of tones, right? It's like, you could just show it, but it really has nothing to do with anything. So a lot of the earlier talks I would be giving, there were no images, but they asked for this one, do you think you might be able to, it's like, yeah, you know, homunculus, there was nothing, right? So I'm like, oh shit, committed to this. I really would like to try to do something. When I give talks, I can't, I get migraines from computers. So a lot of the talks I prepare are cut-ups, right? I will take things from printed out material I have. I will photocopy a quote from a book. I'll cut them up and I'll paste them. And I had a table laid out like this. And then all of a sudden I thought, this is like the whole fucking Z, right? And it's like, I'll just make a Z. Hand this out at the beginning of the talk, give the talk and, you know, pass an envelope around and make a donation. And as the talk began, one somebody came in, saw this there and was like, oh, cool, alchemy scenes. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Interesting, right? So that went well, right? I gave half the, you know, whatever was left over, I gave, you know, half of was left over to the museum for them to kind of raise money with. I had them just for myself to kind of hand out to friends. A week later, the museum calls, do I have any more of these? They've been very popular. I gave another talk on dream. And again, what do you show for dream? So I did another zine. That I did one on timing or the animation of statues. And at that point it was like, I got, this is, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Because what it was, something like the homunculus, this is something you come across as you read alchemical texts. It's something about artificial life, a small recipe for one, always got my attention, right? made a little note of it, started a little file folder on these oddities I've come across and never really thought I'd do anything with it. But that's what happened. Someone asked for a talk on it, put it together. And so what a lot of these zines are, they're like mini documentaries. It's all the kind of key material outlining the key ideas. They don't have a lot of answers as to what this is, but it has a lot of good starting points. I think of them as trailheads. So if you're interested in like alchemy and time, I talk about five to six different timing systems, like the mansions of the moon, things like this, and how this times in, ties in as well as times it. But I, 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 you know, I don't have anything to prove. I point out some things, but if you wanted to go deeper, the bibliography will, as well as that material. So there's a lot of opposing of questions that uh, if I were to do a book, this is, would be my, and that's exactly what kind of what they are. They're sort of a place to put all of my research notes in one place. So it's open anybody to pick one up and go do your own, you know, kind of research beyond that. Mm. Yeah. And you can pick them up at, well, all the stuff you can get through my website, keptimpressed.com, but also through a place called Printed Matter in New York. There's a website, Printed Matter Inc. Catland Books carries it. I've been there. Actually, I think... Yeah, Tara, we went there once. Catland, my girlfriend's sitting on yeah, the other side Brooklyn. of the camera. Yeah, we've been yeah, there once. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, they just reopened and expanded, actually. Hi. Yeah, they expand. They expand and yeah, they carry my work, Bookie Wookie in Amsterdam. And it's sort of like an artist book, ephemeral kind of a thing. And you really kind of put your finger on it when you said this is kind of like a, you know, an urban do-it-yourself kind of, kind of a thing. And, and I think it's that way because of the density of the population enables it. Right. Right. It's kind of hard to do this. I mean, we're a city of 8 million here, so you know there's probably like 10,000 or 5,000 other strange people that would be into it, right? You know? So, you know, it, there, there's that base. And the internet has really extended the exposure as mm. well. So, Well, and I think New York is a melting pot for this kind of underground occult culture going oh, back yeah. all the way to Crowley's days and before when the Dutch came and named everything devil this and devil that because of what the natives were doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it does. I mean, what is it? Madame Blavatsky, I guess, was living somewhere in the 40s, somewhere in the 40th street. There are tours through here that kind of like will, will kind of point to the old and that's it. It's always, it has always been here. And in right now, a lot of it has kind of migrated kind of decentralized, but centralized more in Brooklyn. Back in the seventies, it was really in the East Village uh, because everything, there was like, no, no, everything was, everything was falling down, even though so things were cheap because, you know, good luck to you to live here. But there was a great concentration of, I forget who was it, there was a writer that said it was either rock, rock and roll, drugs, or woo-woo. <laughs> He goes, those are the, and usually all in one person, right? So you were into drugs, magic, and, you know, and music. And that was the sort of a thing. But, it, but the guy said he was like pretty much like kind of three camps with maybe an overlap to one of the others. And it, and it pretty much does describe it because they really were, I mean, they were, they were magical wars here in the 70s. It's well, I mean, geez, Brian, you said you, you get mi migraines. So I don't want to keep you here too long, but with a sentence like that, I'm sure we can go on Where for a couple. Go, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that references it, it's like, I mean, I was, I was never involved in any of these things, but you would hear it. There was always mm -hmm. people putting whammies on other people. I mean, you just couldn't, but there is this, I mean, it's in any, any kind of community that, that kind of expresses some kind of an exclusivity to a knowledge and an expertise in things. You you do start getting, you know, a piston contest, let's say, right? Like I know more that that that. So in the seventies there was a lot of a lot of hostility amongst people that you would think should be just sort of natural allies, if you know what I mean. You're kind of all like in the same but that's it. You're all in the same pot. So each one is kind of and it was called dead name is the name of the book. I'm looking off to the side because I was helping a friend with something and I referenced it also. Who's, who's working on, he was also here, he was living with a bunch of these folks in the, in the, in the 70s and he's kind of doing a graphic novel memoir around it. But this is, this is, as I say, yeah. you know, as we broadcast this out to the world. <laughs> no, this is just something that's getting worked on. But Dead Names is the name of the book and it's by Simon. It has to do with the Necronomicon being published. It's the story of the publishing of the Necronomicon in the seventies. Okay. <laughs> and he was deeply involved. Right. And so this is, this gets into 
um, some of the characters and there's sort of a chapter on the witch wars, as they called it then. And then how there was a sit down, <laughs> you know, to trying to bring peace amongst the, the covens and the, and the sectarians. <laughs> oh yeah. It's wild here. Yeah. So, wow. So, yeah. Then it's like the church. Uh, anyhow, no, you, you folks really, this is, I don't know how good of a literary piece this is, but it is an interesting kind of history in a way of the writing of the Necronomicon. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Never, well, never yeah, heard. it's it's in oh. the Barnes and Noble near my house, but yeah. I never well, bought it. Originally, do you want a little like? Yeah, please. Yeah, that was. Well, Dead Names kind of gives the whole kind of story to it. Okay, I was working at Weiser's around the time. I left to go to school, but I'd come back often and visit the folks who were there. And I was once over, it was Jim Wasserman's loft, and there were a couple of people, other folks that were involved in publishing, and he was involved in editing for Weiser's at that time. And we're just kind of hanging out. I was visiting from upstate coming from college, and, and he goes, take a look at this. We just got this manuscript in. They want they want Weissers to publish it, but we're not sure. And it was the and it's like they claim it's the Necronomicon. It's like what's the ne Necronomicon? They go H.P. Lovecraft. This is like me, like twenty something. Who's H.P. Lovecraft? And it's like okay, forget it. <laughs> like he's not an alchemist. Forget it. But it was like this sort of thing. And part of it was, is this real? Right. That was the debate. So I read it, other people read the manuscript and it was like, it, it has that ring of a coherent system, right? But is this the, is, is it really this, this book that was, it's like, I doubt and everybody was like, but at the same time, it felt like it had a, and this is what the writer of this book, that name says, is that this may not be a handed down thing from the Assyrian, what have you. But it's like many other magical manuscripts, like the Picatrix, for instance, that comes out of an Arabic, but an older kind of a tradition. There are things in it that point to and trace back to an older tradition. Might have gotten distorted, might have what have you. Names might have gotten garbled. I don't think anybody is claiming it. But when you read this, you go, this, this seems like if you really went into it, you might you might be sorry, let's put it this way. You might call up something you might not be able to get rid of. But not that I, not that it, not that I believe that there's any externality to this. But I believe that in these systems where you put your mind and energize, well, that's what you kind of develop. So it may not be smelling like sulfur. It may be the crack at it coming down the street with a hammer. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a New York moment right there <laughs> i'm gonna hurt somebody and it's like oh shit how do i how do i banish this it's yeah like, you hold it up you know you want to see badass you got <laughs> yeah. wow see now that's just something you know i can't have expected to come across but i'm so glad you shared that with me because yeah i, I remember seeing that book and you know being born in 94, internet culture, the first thing I thought of when I saw that book, unfortunately, was an association to like school shooter, Columbine, oh, dangerous, you know. Absolutely. And this I was scared of it. Absolutely. This is what it evolved. The whole satanic panic of the 80s was like, 
I mean, that really spooked a lot of folks who were, who were serious, normal individuals that were practitioners. It was like seeing this satanic panic kind of going on. And it's like, holy fucking shit. This is like witch, rich witch hunts. These are innocent people here getting accused of like, and going to prison for it. It's like, holy fucking shit. Right. Did you ever see the, the West Virginia? West Memphis three. Yeah, West Memphis three. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I have uh, I have a friend who told me some very interesting things about that gentleman, Damian Eccles, because he's mm-hmm. gone on several podcasts and kind of, you Absolutely. know, reformed himself and talks about, you know, magic and whatnot for people. But there is a sort of suspicion I think people may reasonably have about him because of his association with that case. But obviously that was a very inflammatory situation in the Country. Absolutely. I mean, and it just, so it, it, it does have that kind of a thing to where it becomes like, I mean, because it is extreme. I mean, it is when you read this and all the images and it's just like the diagrams, it's like, whoa, this is, this is, this is a real shit. <laughs> but it's like, what do you, and again, in all of this, what I always say is, what is your point? Right. What do you do this for? Right? Is it the pursuit of wisdom? Are you this is where it's in my mind where great religions, philosophies all fall down, right? Is like where they start pursuing power instead of wisdom. And I think when you pursue true wisdom, there's a kind of a natural power that accrues to that without you even trying. Right. Right. And I think you can see that in situations where one calmly speaks the truth to something that the parties involved kind of like chill out and recognize somehow. Right. Right. And, and it's like, again, what, to what end, right? When one does alchemy, when one makes attacks, when one, and this is the thing that you would see in these so-called witch wars, how fucking petty and ego. And it's like, what is this about? Is this trying to kind of strengthen a so-called community that can maybe push it a little deeper, uh, better insights into things? Uh, you know, what are you up for? What is this? Is it just a game? Like, let me put a whammy on this guy so I can get the next promotion. Do you know what I mean? Is this a Rosemary's baby situation? <laughs> right. They want to have the most participants in their coven and, you know, whammy some I other coven. Truth. Yeah. I have the real truth and they have a dangerous thing. And what they're saying is so wrong that if you follow them, oh, your soul is going to be damned. Right. right. And this is why you need to follow this way. It's like, no, that's not how it started. It, you know, come on. <laughs> right. A battle of egos really is what yeah. it sounds yeah. like. Now, before we go, cause we are kind of running out on our time sure, here. Sure. You mentioned flies when you're having fun, yo. I agree. And we definitely want to have you back on in, in the future. Maybe we'll even come down to New York city and catch one of your presentations. If you still are doing those. I am. And once we get back to kind of live action here, mm, right. we're tiptoeing back to it. Morbid anatomy has opened up, but because of the recent surge, everybody's kind of like, right. you know, we got hit really hard the first time. So we understand they go, you know, you might want to wear a mask. Everybody's like, okay, <laughs> right. I'm good. Right. I got it. Well, on this point of, of maybe masked alchemists, I want to bring up uh, a part in your book. I think it's on, I don't read Roman numerals, but it's on a page. And you talk about uh, different alchemists, some real and some imaginary, and a name popped out to me, Mr. Nicholas Flamel, and oh, yeah. his association with Falconelli. And I hear this story of Falconelli being maybe just an imaginary alchemist. Is there anything more to that? 
No, but it's like, I don't think he was imaginary. I think it's a pseudonym for someone real. Mm. Someone wrote the books, right? He wrote two books, one Mystery of the Cathedrals and the other one known as uh, Dwellings of the Philosophers, Fulcanelli, I'm speaking. Right. Fulcanelli supposed, well, did live and publish in the 20s in France, Paris, I believe Paris. But according to legend with him, no one really knows how old he, and he was seen one of his followers, a man named Cancelier, who died in the 80s and was a student of his, right? And said he met him later on, I guess, in the 30s or the 40s, and he was looking much, much younger. And he, they had a discussion, they imparted some what have you, and then he disappeared again. And then some people say, well, it's actually the writings of Cancelier. And then others say, well, no, there's other, there's, there's many different theories as to who he was as a real human being, but the work he writes about, right, is what was known and or is known as the Flamengo. And what that's understood to be is a working on the great work that the beginning materials are antimony, which is a particular method. And the ways you work it to purify, uh, to purify it, which then goes on to purify mercury, which then is then seeded with various forms of gold and silver to make the philosopher's stone. And so Flamel is both a historic character, but also a legend. Okay. Because the name Nicholas Flamel actually points to a person in the 14th century, uh, who was a copyist, a scrivener. Uh, and had married a wealthy widow and they had endowed some orphanages and built a church. So what happened is in the first legends ascribed to him as an alchemist were written about 150 years after they were alive. And they ascribed the wealth as coming from alchemical practice. And it was written in the voice of Nicholas Formel. And it's called on the hieroglyphics of on this one church and, and it's encoding the alchemical process and it's his writing. So in understanding this, uh, you can come up with a process. And so Fulcanelli identifies it as well as many other alchemists in the, in, be, in between those time periods, identify it as work with that. And there's a lot of contemporary work being done. Mm. So if you were to look up the dry way. Is another way it's referred to the dry way antimony. It's also what Newton was working on, um, Robert Boyle as well. It was, I would say, one of the main strands of, you know, great work alchemy of the 17th century. There are other substances being used, but this is the, this is the formal work and Fulcan. Beautiful. Well, thank you for tying a bow on that for me. Cause it was yeah. a little bit, uh, loose ends there. And. Yeah. And tying up this episode in such a great way. I mean, Mr. Quote Noir, this has been really, I mean, so much fun for me and really furnished a lot of the gaps in where I'm, you know, oh, trying to yeah. understand alchemy. Fun. Glad you did. I had fun. So anytime you want to talk, let's do it. Right on. So for folks listening who had as much fun listening, go over to CapriPress.com, right? To yeah. follow up with all your work. You've got the zines there, a couple books there, obviously the, the translation of the Emerald Tablet. Is there anything else folks can expect from you, sir? Yeah, if you, there's a, there's a, there's a sign up list for announcements. I only send stuff on books and the talks I give. I have some talks coming up 
on myth and alchemy, one on the book, The Splendor Solace, a four-part class on The Splendor Solace, and then I'm doing an online alchemy 101, right? Six parts, kind of really getting into looking at looking at alchemy through its development by examining particular alchemists. So we get the theory, you get the practice, but then as well as the kind of time arc, and as well as how to get yourself set up doing some experiments at home. So you can keprepress.com, uh, K-H-E-P-R-I press.com. Um, there's a sign up, do it, check in with morbid, morbid anatomy library, but really uh, there's other places that are just too many. To, there's so many, too many to name. No, just go to my website, sign up. You only get stuff on books and talk. So right on. Right. So thank you, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. I mean, really. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's good really questions, really good conversation. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. That's that's means a lot, you know, especially considering this is episode 130. We're off to a great start. And I got to ask you, you know, where did all the books go in Wiser? Because they moved, they went to Maine. Did they take all those used, yeah. beautiful books that were in that basement yeah, to Maine with them? Know. It's, it's, yeah, they're, they're, if you go to Wiser at the quarry, mm -hmm. they had this there. Yeah. I got to ask them for yeah, a catalog. Basement, that was a, yeah, yeah, that, that's, yeah, a lot of people took jobs there just to, just to do that. Yeah. Right. So, anyhow, great talking to you and uh, we'll talk soon. Right on. Well, folks listening, thank you so much and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And what a conversation with Brian Cote Noir. I even remember saying how proud I was of the interview and how well it was. I've been as critical of myself as I can be in order to better myself and my artistry, if you will. Um, not just for my own sense of satisfaction, but so that we can get some more supporters here on the show. I think that as the quality of the show grows, the listenership should also grow. And I've seen that for sure. And we'll get to that pretty soon. We get some reviews, some awesome updates and news to share with all of you. But the conversation with Brian went very, very well. I got a lot of interesting information drawn out of him that possibly wouldn't have gotten from another interviewer. Nothing against other podcasts or other interviewers, but... I think what we have going on here is special. It's a sort of look into my synchromystic way of understanding the world and you, the listener, relating where you can and sharing really kind, awesome messages back my way. I want to get into some of those, but I just wanted to clear up a little more of what I alluded to in the intro where I read the quote by Paracelsus. I think it's worth getting into because I got that quote, obviously, from Brian's book, Practical Alchemy, which was sent to me 
Thanks to the great folks over at Wiser Books. Shout out to them. As you may have noticed, Brian used to work for them in their New York City location when that was a thing. As of recording right now, it is not. But you can still get all of their awesome stuff online, of course, as everything seems to have gone the way of. But that quote is the top of the page at chapter 8 of Brian's book, Practical Alchemy. And he gets into something that I thought was very interesting, considering all of our conversations about Tartaria. So I'm going to read it, and I didn't get a chance to ask Brian about this, and I really regret it. It's the only regret I have about this interview. So let's go ahead and just read some of the chapter, because Brian's great, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind. And I'm sure the folks at Wiser won't mind, because I know most of you who want to learn more are going to go out and get this book anyways. So this will be a great endorsement. So water, all water should be distilled before being used in alchemical work unless otherwise noted. Water may be collected from springs, rain, snow, or dew. Of these dew, especially dew collected in spring and rain, especially rain collected during a thunderstorm are particularly valued due to the amount of fire they hold. To collect the rain, place non-metal buckets outside during a heavy thunderstorm. Filter this water, save some undistilled for future use, and distill the rest. It is best stored in glass bottles. Next segment, the grapevine. The root of alchemy is the grapevine. Without wine, vinegar, and salt of tartar, all obtained from this noble plant, there should be no alchemy. Much of alchemy stems from these three. As all three can be obtained very easily, it is not crucial to make your own wine and vinegar. Even salt of tartar can be obtained through art supply stores, but it is important to learn how to ferment and calcine. And what better way than to work with such a generous plant? The grapevine. So I wanted to read that, obviously, for us Tartaria heads out there. For that part, salt of tartar. For those who don't know, salt of tartar is also known as potash or pearl ash. It's a potassium carbonate, and it is the most common salt in land plants. The salt of tartar opens many doors in alchemy and is prepared by taking dried grapevine or oak wood or even better, raw tartar from oak wine barrels. Calcine it, that is, burn it to an ash. The ash is mixed with distilled rain water, dissolving the salt of tartar. Heating the solution and stirring ensures that as much of the salt as possible is dissolved. This is also called leaching. The solution is then filtered. This may be repeated several times. So... You know, obviously, I don't feel that bad reading little segments of this from this book because you might have noticed this is like a practical guide. You can follow this stuff step by step. And I thought it was worth mentioning that alchemically, pot ash is known as the salt of tartar. I mean, considering everything we know about Tartaria or what's said about Tartaria, sounds to me like we have a little bit of a vestige within alchemy of this time where Tartaria had this sort of association with more advanced sciences, right? Because 
if they were so familiar with potassium carbonate to the point that it was known as the salt of tartar, then, I mean, come on, folks. That, to me, indicates that these alchemists were sort of existing in a time during the Middle Ages when Tartaria was a, you know, large, had a large impression on the planet. I don't know, just some speculation that didn't really go anywhere because, like I said, like you noticed, I didn't ask Brian about this, or at least, I mean, for memory's sake, maybe I, I didn't, but I could have. I mean, it's been quite a while since I had this conversation, over a month. I'm trying to do the outros coinciding with the week that the episode comes out, so it's actually relevant to the folks listening in the now. But, you know, these episodes are becoming more and more timeless as we move away from the more... I don't know, prescient subjects as we sort of come into this age of Aquarius, the age of air, the time where this internet, whatever it is that seems to have the qualities of air is coming to reign supreme. Whereas before people would have met on the earthly realm, people are now meeting here in this airy realm. So I don't know. If you want to learn more about that, I suggest listening to Tinfoil Hat, which you probably already do. The latest episode with Dan Shukas, who we will be having on the show soon. He really broke this down, and I encourage everybody to go check that out because it was very informative. A lot about the age of Aquarius, but here we are in the age of Aquarius. And I'm getting a lot of really awesome messages from you folks. And, and I just got a message from our buddy Ron from New England. Hey, Ron, shout out to you, brother. I, I have to do him a favor really quick. Not really a favor, but an overdue favor, we'll say. Something that should have been done already. But anyways, yeah, here we are in the extended outro. And I am working on finding some messages from you lovely folks out there listening to the show. I can read some of them here. Shout out to the homie Sergio sending me some coffee. Wink, wink. Thank you, brother. Appreciate the love. Let's see. All right. So. Oh, how could I have not brought this up? So the, you guys who listen to your handbook for the apocalypse, you know what's going on with Mike. You might have seen on his Susquehanna Alchemy channel the video that he just did and put out. If you haven't, go and pause this and go watch that it's only like 15 or 30 minutes long so go listen to that and then hear what i'm about to say so mike had this special occasion and i went down to pennsylvania to make sure everything was all right there's going to be more information about it available on the patreon i just had a call with mike yesterday and we kind of reviewed what happened but again you got to go and listen to that video because I don't want to paraphrase what happened. You got to go and watch it yourself. But I will say I was there. I got some undercover recording, audio recording and footage of the presentation that was given. And it was very interesting. Although it wasn't as life-threatening as we may have uh, initially thought, it is still equally perplexing. So be sure to Go over to the Patreon, because Mike told me that he did not want to release this conversation on the public Susquehanna Alchemy feed 
you know, I host that feed. I created it for Mike. I created it for his YouTube videos because I know there's a lot of you out there like myself who don't have time to watch YouTube videos and you'd rather just hear the audio with all the convenience of a podcast app. So I converted a lot of his presentations on YouTube to audio and put them in that RSS feed. His conversations with Ross Ben are also in that RSS feed. And the show that Mike and I do together called Your Handbook for the Apocalypse also exists there. Like I said, I host it, but Mike does not want to post this conversation publicly and he doesn't have a Patreon himself. So sign up for our Patreon. Listen to exactly what happened from Mike himself, and that's all I really can say. I don't know when the next Your Handbook for the Apocalypse will be. I'm certain that we will come together again for another episode, but yeah, it seems like that's not going to be happening on regular schedule. So stay tuned, and I think, if anything, it's a great opportunity to catch up on all of Mike's work because there's a lot out there, and I'm sure you haven't gone through it all. I haven't either. So we'll see what happens next. It's not over, folks. We're going to be digging into the Connecticut River mysteries. We're going to be digging into the Hudson River. We're going to be digging into the Thames River. We're going to be digging into all of these rivers and figuring out how this works. It's not just the Susquehanna River. That is the grandmother river, if you will, but there are other equally interesting quite possibly equally significant rivers out there to look into. What is a river but an analogy for the flow of life and time itself, right? So here we are. We have a very awesome message from a friend all the way in Rome, Italy. He is a patron, goes by the name Joyful Snake says, Mark Palmer, my brother, hope this finds you well. Please take care of Uncle Mike. He is a national treasure and one of the greats. Thank you. He is well taken care of. He is all right. He says, this is Ryan C., a.k.a. Joyful Snake, proud patron. My family thinks I'm crazy telegram follower and big fan of your show. Thank you. First off, thank you for all you're doing and the work you put in. I know the hustle never ends, but your hard work is paying off and you're making a difference. Great work, dude. Thank you. Two, your podcast is great. You have a great way of interacting with guests. You allow them to speak with plenty of space, but you also steer the conversation to your particular areas of interest. It rarely gets derailed. It's never boring and you have an intuitive skill, my friend. Keep cultivating it. Thank you. Three, perhaps most important, there is something about your show that kicks off synchronicities in those ready to receive them. This is true for my family thinks I'm crazy, but especially true for Handbook for the Apocalypse. Holy shit, I don't know what is happening there, but there is some kind of remarkable magic occurring. I wanted to say all that to you and plus and thank you so much that's very kind of you and i might not have read it if you didn't say the third part because i don't want to just pat myself on the back even though that is very no i don't know it's up to you guys if you, if you like me reading this kind of stuff on the show then keep sending it in but 
I, I appreciate the message. I appreciate the kind words. Further, Peter Shampoo was a game changer for me. Thank you for giving him. Yes, of course. I mean, it's a game changer for myself. And if you're listening to your handbook for the apocalypse, you know that that all kind of happened in the, within the arc of the show. I never met Peter in person, but he and I are from the same hometown. I have signed copies of all of his books as a direct result of Michael Wan recommending Gaia Matrix to me during a biomancy session. Oh, okay, very interesting. Peter and I had a number of back and forths via email, mostly around the fact that Springfield sits smack on the 42nd parallel. As the Mystic Highway, which is referred to that as that by Michael Hoffman and his Twilight language which is a sequel to the book that Mike initially recommended to me, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. That's awesome that he also recommended Gaia Matrix to you. And then Rome, Italy also sits on the 42nd parallel, which is where Joyful Snake currently lives. Realizing Rome and Springfield are on the same longitudinal longitudinal line and the significance of that was huge for me there are a lot of interesting things about springfield the city of firsts home of the first automobile motorcycle refrigerator basketball and more it sits right on the connecticut river but particularly interesting for me is that springfield was home to jack parsons parents jack parsons student of Crowley and lead of the OTO and inventor of rocket fuel technology. His parents moved to California just before Jack was born, but they were from Springfield. His mother was an heir to the Stevens Dure Automobile Company, which was a first car, and his father, Marvel Parsons, heir to a refrigeration company fortune, the first refrigerator. They divorced after Jack's birth, and his father returned to Springfield from California. Marvel Parsons' story ends there, but I think there is more to that history. I have been drawn to it, fascinated by it, and interested in it. Perhaps most interesting is one of the first witchcraft trials in the New World took place in the Northampton-Springfield, Massachusetts area more than 50 years before the infamous Salem witch trials. The accused was Mary Bliss Parsons. Jack Parsons is a direct descendant of Mary Bliss Parsons. I have documented archival proof of this. I am working on a presentation on all of this, and I will share it as it comes together. But I just want you to know I have a regular corporate job. I make good money. I am a normie, and something in the world is changing and has changed me significantly. While my family might think I'm crazy, I know that I am not. Your podcast has helped me to work with that and continues to. Wow. Ryan, and like I said in the email that I responded with, this is awesome. I'm so excited to see you put this presentation together, and I would love to have you on the show to do that after maybe you put it together on your own end or maybe even for the first time. Who knows? I'm down to, to even collaborate, but this is what I'm talking about, you know, and I will say that Springfield has been very significant to me in many different ways. When I was a delivery guy, one of the 
more energetic places that I have the most sort of synchro memories from was Windsor, Connecticut, which is just on the other side of the border from Springfield. And, and yeah, that area of the Connecticut River is very interesting, very historic, very powerful. As we talked about in your handbook for the apocalypse, thanks to Tara, my smoking hot girlfriend, who also researches this stuff with us, she found that there was a group of people called the Connecticut River Gods who lived in that area. Just another weird sort of segment. So I am so, so happy, Ryan, my friend, the Joyful Snake, that this is coming together because it's something that Mike basically inspired in me to look into the Connecticut River even further. And, you know, I couldn't have done it without someone like you, someone who's living or from Springfield, living on the 42nd parallel still, which is where Springfield is. Chicago is also on the 42nd parallel. Detroit is somewhat on the 42nd parallel. I think Albany, New York is also on the 42nd parallel. And Rome is on the 42nd parallel. So, wow. You know, this is exactly what I was talking about. All of us coming together, crowdsourcing this information, collaborating. You know, I've, I've done my best to look into it. And, and yeah, this is what I'm talking about, you know, and like I said, I'm excited to hear this presentation and see how that fits into what I found and maybe how we can collaborate on something together, my friend. So right on. And thank you so much for the awesome message. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Next, we have another really awesome message from a similar perspective. So. This is another long one, folks. This one comes from Sean McDevitt. And he says he's from Pottstown, PA. He said he knows there's some strange history to the city of Reading. And it's kind of like Philly's dirty little brother. Not a very nice city in terms of safety. Anyways, there is a lot I could say about some of the strange things I see around. But I guess I should let them develop a little more. The one thing I wanted to show you because in my opinion, I think it plays a big part in why the city is the way it is today, is the tower that sits atop of Mount Penn called the William Penn Fire Tower. It's some of the strongest evidence, and it kind of piggybacks off Ross Ben's work. Interesting. It was one of the Eisenhower projects to put people to work after the war, World War II, I assume you mean, you can see this tower from anywhere in the city, mostly, and from many miles away. The description of the building will stand out to, as well. <clears throat> well, it will stand out to anyone listening to the show, I'm sure. Uh, it was designed by a dude named H.C. Freeman, and the building cost $33,000. That's very interesting. I feel like Freemason symbolism jumps out especially if you look at the tower from upside down using some of the work Ross has done on the six ley lines that stem out from the Commodore Barry state in Philly. I use Google earth to connect the tower to the statue. It falls exactly on one of the lays and hits every significant location that Ross Ben points out on that ley line within Philadelphia. 
but his map only shows the Philadelphia area. Outside of the city, I found it runs through Valley Forge and threads the needle between a huge obelisk and a small star fort type thing. Not to mention all the stories and monument statues of George Washington that is scattered very close in proximity to this line. It also runs through a town called the King of Prussia, King of Prussia, a very strange name for a town, uh, King of Prussia, which I also think ties into Ross Ben's work. You might be right. I have a lot of points and places of interest, but I'll stop here from now for now. I also feel like there is also something to all of these towers built in the Eisenhower area. I know Peter Shampoo doesn't think so, but this tower makes me disagree. I wonder what Peter said that would lead you to think that. I don't know. Maybe it was one of the questions I asked him. I connected this tower to the castle near you, Sleeping Giant State Park. Not Nothing really nutty except I did see this one thing, Lake Chamberlain look looks like it has somewhat i guess a part is a part of the rock walls you speak of okay so i don't know how many sleeping giant state parks are there are in the world but i can say there's no lake chamberlain near the sleeping giant state park that i'm thinking of or at least the one that i've referenced i could be wrong but what really makes me think that is the picture that you shared. It just doesn't look like it just, it's just a very large lake. I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know what program you're using. It doesn't look like, I, is it the computer version? Oh no, it's not. It's Google maps on your phone. Is it Google earth that you're using to look at this? Cause I, I don't know for certain, but I will say, even though it says Hamden, Connecticut, I don't know if that's the right Sleeping Giant State Park. It just doesn't look like, like there's not a lake that big, unless you're zoomed in really, really, I don't know. I'd have to go and look, but I can say, yeah, there's stone walls all over the place in this part of the New England area, but I don't know, something just makes me think that that's not the same Sleeping Giant State Park. I could be wrong, but either way, super interesting stuff. And I very much appreciate this, Sean. And yeah, keep it coming, man. I know you said you're still kind of just digging through all of this, but don't hesitate to send more because I'm definitely interested. All right. So here we are. We got another message. Shout out. <clears throat> Kristen, hey Mark, I love your podcast and I will post a review soon. I was wondering if you could tell me if you could get in touch with the person that told you about that tree in Ohio. I'm from Ohio and I would love to go find it. I'm also planning a trip to certain to the Serpent Mound. I appreciate all of your material and it resonates deeply with me. I really hope that your passions and talents can be parlayed into something financially promising for you. Our world needs more of this information. Wow, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I hope so too. Uh, all right, <clears throat> let's see. Another message. Ooh, very cool. So someone who doesn't share their name, but they have a very cool picture that they drew. Hello, Susquehanna Alchemy Podcast. Just sharing some quick art partially inspired by conversations on the show. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't read this here because this is for someone that listens to Susquehanna Alchemy. 
I'll send it to Mike. But it's very cool art that they shared, and I appreciate I don't know why they sent it to my email, though. Maybe that's my fault. Oh, and shout out to Divided Being. You won a t-shirt. You got back to me on that. A lot of cool messages lately. I think some of them I've already addressed. Shout out to Tyler, who signed up for the Patreon not too long ago. Let's see. All right. <clears throat> so, we got a review, folks. And by the way, we're top 30. We're in the top 50 of all philosophy podcasts on, on Apple whatever that means. So we're in number 34. That's pretty cool. All right, let's see. So we have some reviews here. I'm going to read one because I thought it was very nice. Oh, here it is. Five stars, better than Rogan. Thought-provoking, intelligent discussions about interesting topics with smart guests. This podcast also has a great vibe to it. Such a great find. Thank you so much, bootstrappers. I appreciate that. And we have another message. Five stars, Jared Digital. Shout out to you, Jared. Synchronistic Sauce discovered Mark through the Tinfall Hat podcast and decided to listen to a episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast one day. I've been listening steady for over the past year now and continue to look forward to new episodes each week. What I like most about this show is the focus on the beautiful, magical world that we live in. And now that I say that, I think I read this review already. Yeah, I guess I did. It did come in at the beginning of the month. Anyways, double shout out to you, Jared. You rock. And that's it, folks. If you write me via email, I'll definitely get your message. If you leave me a review on Apple and you're upset that I didn't read it, just take a picture of it and send it to me via Instagram. Because I don't have an iPhone, so I cannot see all of the reviews on Apple. If there's somebody out there in the Telegram who uses an iPhone who can do that, do me a favor and just screenshot like the latest ratings and reviews and, and get a couple of them over to me. I don't know. I mean, there's like 107 ratings. I don't think all of those have reviews attached to them, but if you can find some that I haven't read on the show yet, that would be awesome. I'd be very grateful for you for doing that. Shout out to our friend Kyle at the Big Dumb Podcast. He wrote a message in to the No Agenda Podcast, and it goes a little bit like this, and he also happened to mention us. So I appreciate you, Kyle. I'm going to play this message that you left on No Agenda. And I hope that everybody goes and tunes into No Agenda as well. Murfreesboro, and he's on the list for that. Jingles, get vaccinated. No. All right. Get vaccinated. No. <laughs> Kyle Rainey from Canyon, Texas. <clears throat> Got a row of ducks, 22222. And has a couple of jingle requests. WTC7, Noodle Gun, and Any Owl Sharp. And in the morning, gentlemen. This row of ducks donation brings me over the halfway mark to knighthood. I donated 333.33 for show 1396, but as first-time donor, full-time dummy, my note was lost to the ether. I'm hoping to correct that with this donation. First things first, please deduce me. You've been deduced. And call out my friends as douchebags, John. Drew. 
Jim Davies. As a young millennial producer, I'm 25, so I might have missed the mark to be considered a millennial. Nope, you're in the sweet spot. Who works in higher education, I can say that nearly all hope is lost. <laughs> this is not encouraging. Even the few years difference between myself and the students creates a huge gap in our worldview. I won't get into the COVID BS I deal with, but let's just say I work in a liberal arts department. Okay, we're all ears. Adam and John, listening to you along with other podcasts like Tinfoil Hat with Sam Tripoli, a JRE, OBDM, Higher Side Chats, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, and many more, has done so much for me in my amygdala as well as inspiring me to start my own podcast, which I did last year. For any producers, please check out the Big Dumb Podcast, where we talk conspiracies, current events, and review craft beer. I'd love any constructive criticism. <laughs> I, I think you got a good combo. I, I'll have to listen. And Adam, I want to thank you for creating this art form and mastering it, allowing me to learn from the best. Producing a show single-handedly is, not, is no easy feat, but I hope to continue to learn and grow making a show worth listening to. Again, thank you both for all you do, and may you never find an exit strategy. strategy. Please shout out to my smoking hot fiance, Brooklyn Rose. Happy third anniversary, J January 24th. And I can't wait to marry you. Three years together and we never had a fight. Also, please wish a happy birthday to my amazing mother, Bridget Kingsbury, who turns 46 on February 3rd. Wouldn't be here without her. Finally, may I request podcasting and jobs karma for all. Love is lit from Kyle. <laughs> All right. Again, thank you, Kyle. That was awesome. I appreciate you for doing that. Speaking of shout outs, we got uh, a shout out from Alex Stein. I gave him a $2 donation and he wasn't very warm to it. I guess my money is not good there, but just trying to support my buddy. He's been doing a lot of great stuff lately and it was cool to see that the Baby Truther show is back in some form not in the same way they're doing it before but whatever it's cool i'm just happy to see alex on the grind as usual kicking ass taking names getting famous anyways here we are folks 30 minutes into this extended outro and it's time for me to go a shout out to everybody who's left us a kind message on instagram telegram email all the ways get in touch with the show we have some new t-shirt art that is out we have a t-shirt that says get boosted and it shows you exactly what might happen if you get all the boosters you might turn into a big giant werewolf so that's kind of cool shirt i made it with just some kind of free art so it's not like anything i drew with my own hand but it's cool and then something that is extra super extra cool is a logo that I commissioned Bags Draws. Find him on Instagram at Bags Draws. He drew this really cool black and white sort of, almost looks like a block print stamp type design. It's beautiful for the show. T-shirt design. So if you want a t-shirt, go in the episode description here and click the link. Check out all the t-shirt designs we got. The newest one at the top 
with the moon and the bird and the pyramid eye and mushrooms and crystals and a blunt and a weed leaf and Sasquatch and a UFO and a Tartaria Griffin and a constellation and all kinds of crazy stuff in this design that he put together for us. Ley lines are even in here. It's, it's beautiful. So check that out, get that on the t-shirt and let the whole world know your family thinks you're crazy. That about does it for us here today, folks. Thank you for listening and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Peace out. Shout out to all our patrons. Sign up and get a spirit animal name today. Oh, before I go, how could I forget? We have two new patrons and they both got two new spirit animal names. Can't even go yet. Hold on. Wait a minute. Put the brakes on the show. We got to look at newest patrons and give them their spirit animal name live on the air here. All right, Stephanie G, thank you so much. You are the peyote raccoon, and I got your message. She said this is the closest she's ever been to being an American by having the name peyote raccoon. I don't know what country you're from, but I, I hope you can... Tell your friends that and they don't think you're crazy. And then Stacy S, shout out to you. Thank you for joining the Patreon. You are the advanced snake. Shout out to you. All of the Patreon spirit animal names are divine via the sacred path tarot card deck and the animal spirit tarot card deck. Again, shout out to my smoking hot girlfriend, Tara. If it wasn't for her, we wouldn't even have those tarot card decks. The animal spirit tarot card deck is hers and the sacred path one she bought while we were at a used bookstore together in September. So anyways, now we will conclude this wonderful alchemical episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I love you all for listening and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. 